BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. I'm Liv. So today we're picking up part two of our Celine Dion episode. In this episode, we go from you know, kind of the beginning of her English language career to present day. So chronologically, it's about from 1990 to 2020. Mm -hmm. And of course, intertwined with her musical career, we're talking about all things related to her family, her marriage. Yeah, her personal triumphs along the way and some personal tragedies as well. Let's start by talking about Unison, which is her first English language album. It comes out in 1990. We get a few hits off this album. We get Where Does My Heart Beat Now, The Last to Know, and Have a Heart. And all these singles really uh, reach top 40 with Where Does My Heart Beat Now peaking at number six. The album was produced by another Canadian, David Foster. Uh, it went certified platinum in Canada and... of album sales for this album were outside Quebec. So this is kind of considered a a pretty important moment um, and certainly began the rise of her fame in English speaking music. And then in 1991, uh, she earned a $10 million contract, which is nuts, uh, which was signed for her first five albums over the next 10 years. And she fulfilled that in less than five. So, you know, she was driven. It's crazy. She was just pumping out music. Like she was clearly working, just working so hard at this point in her career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just getting it out there. So we teased this in the last episode, but uh, one of the, the real breakthroughs came with her duet um, of Beauty and the Beast. So we'd be amiss not to mention it here, though we did discuss it a lot in the last episode. <laughs> so she sings the song, The Beauty and the Beast. We we did get into it a little bit, but um, this is obviously a, a really big moment in her career. This was her first Grammy. Um, and it was a duet with Peebo Bryson. Interestingly, the song isn't in the movie it's it's Angela Lansbury who plays Mrs. Potts sings a song in the movie I think this plays in the credits Mm -hmm. obviously released you know it's obviously a marketing tool for the movie um but but it was a duet because they were worried that 
because she was so new, she was a newcomer uh, that she wouldn't attract a big enough audience in the U.S. by herself, which like in hindsight is funny that, you know, Celine like wasn't big enough <laughs> yeah. at this point. It also um, is like the perfect, like if you know the music from Beauty and the Beast, it is kind of the perfect song for her. And so despite the fact that it's a duet, yes. like it, it does make a lot of sense too. Um, and of course, like she goes on to feature on the soundtracks of so many films. Um, and I don't know, I guess it probably is still a thing today, but I feel particularly in the 90s, it was really important that movies had a star song to go along with it to make it more marketable. Okay, but I also want to draw a distinction between mm-hmm. um, like best song in a movie versus the score. Sure, sure. And maybe I'm not qualified to be making this distinction. And I think it, interestingly, in Titanic, it's kind of blurred because the score was written by James Horner and James Horner wrote My Heart Will Go On. More on that later. I wonder, okay, you know more about movies than I do. <laughs> do you not think this is also the movie in the film, like the pop song that goes in the film is kind of also an easier to way to just like rake in another Oscar for a big movie? Sure, of course. But I... Because I, like the songs that win the best song in a, in a movie at the Oscars are not, or I'm, I'm not sure what the category is actually called. Like they're not always great songs. They're not always big hits, you yeah, know, these days. I, but I don't know if that's a more recent phenomenon or if that was true in 1991. You know what I mean? Right. Because times have very much changed since then, especially like like you say, when you think about like the type of people that are singing the songs, like, yeah, it's a bit different. Like, like you say, there is a distinction between her song from Beauty and the Beast versus her song in Titanic, which seems to be like a little bit more integral to the plot, right? Because like you said, she wasn't singing mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast in the movie. It's not in the yeah. writing time. Like it's not in the film. Yeah. It's like it's it's really like Angela Lansbury's version is in the film. Which yeah. is beautiful. Which is Angela Lansbury's favorite uh version of the song, she says. Well I guess she would say that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, she got interviewed because they were talking about the new version because they released a new version of Beauty and the Beast, like with uh, uh, the song with the with, in 2017. Yeah, um, with Ariana and if you've Grande heard it, and John Ariana Le- Grande and John Legend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what? It isn't as good. Okay, so next we get Color of My Love in 1993. This is an important moment, not just in her career, but also I think okay. in her relationship with the public. Because she shares in the dedication um, that Renee is the color of her love. <laughs> so, of course, we talked about in our last episode that, you know, she had had, she had a relationship with Renee from age 20. And they had gotten together just after Eurovision. And they kept their relationship a secret all this time. So she had been dating him. Um And they were nervous about coming out because of the age difference. But I think at this point they were ready. And of course they got married very soon after. So the timing to me makes a lot of sense. It's like, okay, we're just before we get married, let's, let's give everybody a a little bit of a sign that we're together, give them a chance to adjust. And then of course um, get married. And are are we ready to talk about the wedding? Are we ready to talk about the Royal Canadian wedding? We're ready to talk about the wedding. (laughs) 
1994, Celine and the Color of Her Love, Tie the Knot. Uh, and they got married in Montreal, of course, at the Notre Dame Basilica in front of 500 guests. And it didn't really matter, I don't think, where you sat because you definitely could see her dress. <laughs> it was so large. <laughs> What's the dress look like? It's like very... 90s puff sleeve like huge puff sleeves she had all eight of her sisters holding her train in the back so that gives you a sense of like how big the train is um and she had this massive headpiece so where a veil would normally go it's like almost like a chapeau we'll put a link almost like a chapeau (laughs) (laughs) it's like quite tall her like veil yeah, hat. Isn't that thing. just a word for hat in French? Yeah, that's why we're in Montreal here. It's funny because this wedding is so elaborate. It was aired on the CBC in Canada, and the cost was five hundred thousand. I was kind of expecting it to be more, to be honest. But I guess in in ninety four, five hundred thousand obviously is a lot more. Yeah. What is nine? What is five hundred thousand dollars in twenty twenty money? I don't know. Eight eighty. Wow. So, but still less than a million, which I'm kind of surprised about because she's obviously, um, you know, pretty successful. I was, I was just expecting it to be more, but uh, she does renew her vows and that costs more. So we'll get to that. (laughs) Of course. Of course she does. I thought it might be fun to talk about one song in particular and kind of deconstruct it a little bit as um, to kind of like take an opportunity to talk about her style and her like what she was known for I guess so I chose to talk I chose the song it's all coming back to what me did you now. bring today <laughs> so for sure I love this song I love this song okay so this song is over seven minutes long it's a hugely epic song like a seven minute song is just like, that's insane. And the thing that I love most about the song, I should say it's a, it's a Jim Steinman song. And this song was very sought after by Meatloaf. Meatloaf really wanted this song. And John Steinman basically told Meatloaf no. And he, uh, he's, he was adamant that it was a woman's song. It was for a woman. So, Celine Dion eventually comes along and I have to tell you my favorite favorite part of this song is the sound effects in it like the the slamming of the door and then you get like the wind and the motorcycle like and the music video is crazy it's it's wild it's (laughs) epic so the music video was actually filmed in Prague in a castle did you know that no isn't that insane so it's literally in a castle i think that this particular song in this particular music video is so representative of everything about her style that makes her iconic because it's so dramatic and it's so over the top and it's like it's like the melodrama and it's like the acting it's not just like a stand and sing music video it's like a whole motion picture music video yeah and I, I i have to wonder what like the spoke the smoke machine budget was on this <laughs> shoot because holy shit and the curtains it is yes there's a lot of billowing there's a lot of like yes there's a lot of 
billowing linens. <laughs> it's uh, and she's got this big four poster bed too in this like oval shaped room. It's it's uh, and of course there's a storm because that's how you know something bad's happening. There's a storm. Mm-hmm. That's how we tell that something bad's happening in cinema. And um, doesn't the whole music video start with like this epic motorcycle crash? Yeah. It's just like smoke and flames, fire. And it's funny because you hear people who are on set with her talk about her commitment to this role that she's playing. And apparently in the scene that she's like running kind of up and down the halls, it was all pebbled. And the next day she came in uh, and she was kind of limping and her feet were like, she was obviously like something was going on. And the director, I think said to her, you know, what, what happened? And she was like, you know, those, those pebbles I was running on yesterday, like it completely scratched my feet and you made me do it like for half an hour. And he was like, Celine, why didn't you tell me? We, <laughs> we could have figured something out. And, and he just was like, that was like how committed she was to the, the music video. And also just like to her craft and like, she's not a complainer, you know, she just gets on with it. We didn't discuss that there's a ghost appears in this music video. Yes. In the mirror behind her. Who she makes out with passionately. So I have a lot of questions about the magical realism of the ghosts. Um, but I think maybe I'll reserve that. Well, that um, was very 90s. Yeah. That was a 90s it's thing. Very, it's very like ghost because he's like behind her, you know, like yeah. movie ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so hard to believe, but it's all coming back to me. It's all coming back. It's all coming I think that song has been at you know a lot has been a lot of father-daughter dances at a lot of weddings Ugh, yeah so lindy on is known for her love ballads so i think that really single-handedly she supplies the repertoire for virtually any wedding you know maybe is this maybe her most famous credit my heart will go on yeah. the biggest thing she's the things she's known for is probably that song in that movie mm-hmm. um I think due to how big the song was, but also, you know, how big the movie was and how well it did. Um, it won the Oscar for best song in a movie. And there's a whole kind of lore and history around, you know, how, it, how it happens. Um, because she says, I think she said pretty recently on watch what happens live with Andy Cohen, that she never actually, she never really wanted to do the song and Renee kind of pushed her to do it. She resisted doing it um originally but um the late great james horner who died tragically in a plane crash in 2015 who's a um you know a legendary film composer wrote this song and that's what i teased about like scoring versus soundtrack he wrote this you know soundtrack song as well as did the score um he says that he wrote it with her in mind like he wanted it for her and he wasn't asked to write it. Like James Cameron actually ended up not wanting it. He didn't want a pop ballad in his beautiful movie. And I think it shows uh, his lack of self-awareness uh, as a person 
and a director um if you if that gives you any indication of how i feel about james cameron but he said he didn't want a song in the movie apparently he said would you put a song at the end of schindler's list a pop song at the end of schindler's list to which i say james cameron you did not make schindler's list you made titanic um but my movie is big enough i don't need any singer uh obviously at some point he did agree (laughs) to put this in the movie just on your point though if i can go back a tiny bit it's a different set of skills that's often Mm -hmm. required to do uh, an entire movie score it tends to be more orchestral um than just an individual pop song it you know to to create both of those things often calls for a different skill set now, that's not saying that one person can't have both of those things, but it makes sense that oftentimes it's not the same person who would who would do that. Um, as we've, uh, I think, more commonly seen in recent years, as we've had like the Lady Gagas who pop in to do one song in a film and win an Academy Award. But like I said, there, there are other examples of composers who would do both. And the one I'm thinking of is Alan Menken, who, of course, wrote a, a huge number of the Disney classics like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, you name it, he wrote it basically. Um, and so, yeah, so he, yeah, it just depends on, I guess, the person, but it's interesting that he wrote both. Yeah. I, I would, I wonder too, I think like it's a pop song, but it's like, there's a, a really, there's a, like a, a huge orchestra. Like it's, oh yeah, it certainly would have gone to orchestrators after it was written. And yeah, um, like it, it's, it's obviously a, a song with lyrics, but it's not, so different from the score you know no to- no totally yeah no totally what's interesting too is that she did a demo i think she 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 sang it once and that's what they ended up using listen when you're an icon you can do stuff like that i just it's and and she says she talks about <laughs> but going it's such a such a celine quote uh, about going um how she felt when she recorded this demo in one shot she said, I was mad. I don't feel good. I have belly pains. My girly days are starting to happen. <laughs> which my girly days this is amazing. I'm going to have a black coffee with sugar, which I never have on my studio days because it speeds up my vibrato. But I got to New York and I had to do that. And James Horner is explaining to me, what is the movie about? And he said, just think about that and do it. And I'm like, okay, thanks a lot. It's, I think it also speaks to like, how she never does things halfway. She's always She's all in. All in. All in. Yeah. And so like I don't I don't think that there's very many artists in the world who would record a demo and ever be happy with it being the actual version because they didn't try as hard as they could have or whatever. But like not Celine. Like that's just not her brand. You not know? Celine. So in 2000 basically at the height of her career, which is, which in a Barbara Walters interview, (laughs) Barbara Walters was like, what are you doing? Most people like are so focused on their career. They're just all in. And here you are height of your career taking a break. And Celine basically says, you know, there's more to life than, than this. And, and I really want to have a baby. And that's, you know, something that continues for, for a couple of years and, um, and that she, she felt like, she, you know, she was too busy and she had too much going on and she couldn't, she, you know, wouldn't be able to have a baby unless she took a break. And I think that she probably knew more than we did at that point about her, you know, fertility situation. And so of course she does. And 
uh, also prompted what prompted her hiatus was uh, Renee's diagnosis of cancer. So Renee, Renee Charles is born in 2001. Her oldest yes. son? Yes, yes. January 25th, 2001. And I think that an interesting just legal component because we have to. And yeah. while she, before she had her, her first child, Renee Charles, in 2000, the National Enquirer published a false story that she was expecting with twins. And she sued, sued the magazine for $20 million and won. And then donated the money to the American Cancer Society. Um, and the Inquirer obviously apologized. But I was kind of like good on her for going after them because this was something that she was incredibly sensitive about, obviously, because of her struggles struggles with fertility. Mm-hmm. And she kind of, you know, shut it down. And I thought, yeah, I thought that was great. And then she did have twins. Yeah. So she had – So she Later on. Right. Yeah. So, so in, I believe it was 2009, she had a miscarriage. She was doing IVF this whole time between her first child and her attempt to have twins. And I think, I think when she miscarried, it may have been with triplets. It's, I'm not sure. And, um, and then after six rounds, I think of IVF, she had twins wow. and she just was not giving up. So it was, pretty incredible so then she had two two boys uh nelson and eddie and they were allegedly named after nelson mandela and eddie marnay who was a a favorite french songwriter of renee and celine's she had to have surgery to apparently to like improve her chances of conceiving like she underwent that before um she conceived renee charles so it was a real you know she really wanted to be a mother and it was a real struggle for her to get there, you know? Yeah. But you know, she was so committed to it. And, and I think it was coming up to her second return to Vegas that they actually ended up delaying the start a couple of times because they thought she was pregnant then she wasn't. And then what is whatever. So, you know, the having kids was a top priority of hers and she wasn't willing to let her career get in the way of it at all. And I think mm-hmm. it, it also makes, it makes a lot of sense, right? Cause she comes from this huge family. Um, in one interview, she joked that she was not going to have 14 kids, which I thought was funny. Um, but you know, like having, you know, a couple kids was really important to her. And, um, I think Renee, and I think she also had a sense, you know, Renee wasn't going to be around forever. And I think that was also put, put a, a little bit of pressure on her to make, make sure that she, you know, had kids when you know while he was still around you know Mm. because you know the twins were not very old when he died no they would have been six because he died they were born or not even because they were born late 2010 and he was he died in january 2016 yeah um so just like really sad you know but yeah we'll get there we'll get there we'll get there so is this a good time to talk about a new day new day has come new day her first vegas residency at um the coliseum and caesar's palace in vegas and she's kind of credited for you know obviously it does wait can i tell you something about a new day this was like my first celine album and i was all in for a new day i would have been nine 
And I was like obsessed with this album. What's your favorite song off this album? I think I think it's got to be a new day has come. I just I loved it. I know it sounds so cliche, but I loved it. I also loved I'm Alive and Have You Ever Been in Love? That's lovely. Um, so she her first Vegas residency called The New Day runs from 2003 to 2007. It's still remains the highest grossing Vegas residency for a musical artist with uh, mm-hmm. she made. million across 714 shows Um, so lots a lot of money for shoes for Celine (laughs) and yeah she's credited with kind of inventing the modern Vegas Vegas residency for Mm -hmm. for commercial um, for, for pop stars rather and which you know I think historically you had you know, like the Vegas residencies of Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. Um, but she kind of represents the rebirth of that. And now we've seen, um, you know, other successful residencies such as what, Lady Gaga. Britney Spears. Elvis Vaughn, Britney Spears. Shania Twain. Of course, her country yeah. woman, Shania Twain. And I think what's interesting too is that at the time that she signed this deal, the CEO of Caesar's Palace says that he was kind of nervous. It was a pretty big risk because he wasn't like sure if she could sell out every night. And of course she did. But at the time it was almost unimaginable that one artist could just sell out every day of the week. Which it's funny. (laughs) It's funny because Kathy Griffin has a bit, Kathy Griffin does, has like, I don't know what special it's, it's from, um, but she has a, a about a 12 minute bit about Celine, about who Celine is, about the time she met her and went to her show in Vegas. And she says that um, despite being like the highest grossing Vegas residency, she says that every night when Celine comes on, she she does genuinely appear to be shocked that people showed up. <laughs> and this is somebody like she was packing. Like it was like it's a three thousand seat theater every night. It was sold out pretty well. And Kathy Griffin's bit is like maybe we'll insert it because she's like it's as if at three p.m. before her show she turns to Renee and says, "Renee, I think tonight is the night that people will not come <laughs> because it's like she does that Hillary Clinton thing where she's like, you know, when Hillary Clinton comes out, she is always like, you you're here, and she like points at people, you know." <laughs> every night Celine comes out you know just really enjoying being Celine Dion and being truly appreciative that people came to her show or at least it appears that way or at least that's part of the performance which is great yeah well it's funny too because in an interview someone asks her aren't don't you get sick of singing all the same songs that you've been singing for you know 20 30 years and she says you know what sometimes before I start I have that thought for a split second like oh it's this song again but then she's that's literally what she says she looks out into the crowd and she said for these people it might be their favorite song and it might be the thing that got them through a hard time and and I owe it to them to um you know give them the best performance that I can and also that she said that the audience in a way makes it new for her every time because their reaction and what they give back to her is um is like its own show in a way 
which I, I thought was interesting and also like very gracious you know <laughs> yeah she's she's definitely somebody who she does love her fans you know yeah. like I know a lot of celebrities like resent their I think especially like international pop stars because you know They're more crazy. than actors international pop stars are just like so unbelievably famous you know mm-hmm. but she's always like it's amazing <laughs> like there I always think there's going to be women my age and but then there's women in, who are 17 and all these and gay men and all kinds of people of all kinds of ages who come to my show and she just genuinely seemed to like just be loving it to this day you know mm-hmm. cool. well and I'm also surprised how how well she does with people like on the street and like just in the wild and i'm like you've seen that girl that video that girl who's singing to her while she's driving by and celine stops and like takes her hand and it's super nice and the girl isn't a good also no singing isn't amazing yeah. but celine's just and like so some, cute like some of the people are just like crazy like just insane and she's just like thank you you know <laughs> i think i think celine dion really loves being celine dion yeah. I do get a sense, though, that the person that she is in private is very similar to the person that she is in public, which surprises me greatly because she's such a character, you know? Yeah. It, you think that you wonder if there's Quite a time, silly. Yeah. You wonder if there's a time where she just like switches off and just kind of like takes off the mask. But like, I don't know if she does. Like, she's very genuine and very authentic and she does wear her hotter on her sleeve and She's always been very open with like her struggle getting pregnant, her relationship with Renee. It's, I, it's, it's kind of interesting because not everybody's like that. She does kind of say things like she, yeah. <laughs> like sometimes she just says stuff. Um, and, and maybe this is kind of, a, we just, I just want to leave a little, just address this a little bit here while we're talking mm-hmm. about Celine just saying things. So we kind of wanted to put this in the context of, Canadian politics as we always do and obviously um I think as a Quebecer we thought there might be something who came up in French language music there might be something there and there's definitely people have written about her some of the comments that she's made over the years and I really kind of think that they're kind of just things she just set off the cuff that people have tried to build all this meaning into like she um she said when she rejected the Felix award for best Anglophone artist, she said, she says, I'm not Anglophone. I'm Quebecois, which was obviously controversial. And I think led some people to claim her um, because of course, as we know, there are Anglophone Quebecois. Um, and then another point uh, she said, she I'm against any kind of separation. So then the separatists kind of shunned her and like, it's like they, that she's contradictory, but I think Celine isn't, she's, you know, she, I don't think she always has that. I mean, obviously she has media skills. I'm not saying she's like always off the cuff, but you get a sense in interviews too. Like she's not afraid to like (laughs) says, say what she thinks. I think she really does just kind of, she kind of just says stuff sometimes I think. And I think that's kind of what happened with some of those comments that she's the kind of more political comments that she's made like she's clearly someone who's made she's made efforts to be apolitical but I think her nature is to kind of be herself and say what she thinks Mm -hmm. but I also think you know in the same that way that we were talking about that she does wear her heart on her sleeve that if she really truly felt a way about a certain topic that we would know about it you know 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I also think that there's probably value for her career to staying <laughs> a little to bit out of political. Yeah. Yeah. 2016, um, Renee died at the age 73 after a long battle with throat cancer. And his funeral was in the same church in Montreal that they had been married in Notre Dame Basilica. And his, of course, his eldest son, Rene Charles, gave a eulogy that was much talked about. And um, and then only two days later, uh, or sorry, two days after his death, Celine Dion's brother died um, at age 59, also of cancer. So it was, you know, it was a, a time of much tra- tragedy in uh, Celine's life. Certainly. Um, and I think... Like in terms of her career, once Renee passed, she definitely had, like, she kind of had to go back to the drawing board, and and mm-hmm. she she did an album um, called Courage that came out last year, which is her twelfth album, um, and it was kind of her first opportunity to do it all on her own, and it was, I think it was, she certainly struggled with it, but she seems to have found some joy in it because you know she'd never really done she'd never done anything without him right because he Mm -hmm. discovered her when she was 12 and he was with her all the way so I think we kind of seen a similar thing with um Shania Twain after when she did Shania now which although certainly different circumstances I mean Renee Mm -hmm. Renee passed away um Shania was cruelly betrayed um (laughs) but for both of them you know these men had been fixtures in their lives and careers and really important parts of their careers thus far so i think like shania celine says i found it very empowering to kind of take charge of her career and do this herself and Mm. um carl wilson who (laughs) has often been you know critical of celine says uh, of this album and of her career post renee you can you can feel a kind of freedom and confidence radiating from her that wasn't there when she had a boss for her husband. She even acknowledges her new liberty in interviews now without ever criticizing Renee, which is true. Mm-hmm. She never says, it wasn't like Renee kept her in, in a prison and now she's free, but um, she has, I think she's found some power in doing this kind of truly on her own. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting with this particular partnership was that it seemed to me that their contributions did exist somewhat in silos that he, you know, took control of the business side and, and she was more about, you know, the, the artistry and, and the, the voice. Right. And so then when he died, she had to learn a new set of skills as well uh, that she hadn't previously necessarily been practicing because she had relied on him. And, um, so yeah, so I, I think that was also exciting in a way to, to kind of be taking on something new. Okay, let's talk about her fashion. So she's become a bit of a fashion icon over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe never more, never more than now. Like right now, yeah, she's always getting she's getting photographed in look after look. Um, her style is very dramatic and daring and but it wasn't always it It wasn't wasn't always and i think i think that there's a there's a an article titled tracing celine dion's style evolution from not 90s minimalism to modern maximalism and i think it's a, a really good way of like capturing her evolution 
I think maximalism is right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she, when she first came on the scene, she was all double denim and um, like very simple things made iconic. Like I'm thinking of the, the backwards double-breasted suit that she wore to the Oscars, right? Like it, it was very simple and she would take simple things and make them. The white double-breasted suit, yeah. Yeah, like a little different with the fedora. It's like, it's like very over the top, but it was, it was more like she'd take simple concepts and turn them on their head. Whereas now it's like more is more, you know? More is more, yeah. She was do she would do a lot of like very sleek, like spaghetti strap dresses, LBD after LBD. Mm-hmm. And now everything is like monochromatic and beaded. Yes, yes. But she's always loved fashion. I think right now she's definitely like she's she shows up at a lot of fashion shows. Like she loves mm-hmm. high fashion. Yeah. Um, she's very integrated in that scene. I think she's got sounds she probably used friends with designers. Yeah, she did she did quite well. She was noted at the Met Gala. I think I forget what year was it. Was it last year or the year before where the theme was camp? Right. It was canceled this year, right? Yeah. Um and she wore like this. Oscar de la Renta sequined get up with like a feathered headpiece um, that was <laughs> amazing. And I think she says that RuPaul told her in, at, the, at a party after that she had won the contest. Um, oh my God, what an honor. But yeah, she's definitely famous for having a lot of shoes. Um, mm-hmm. And she does carpool karaoke with <laughs> James Corden and he tells her that he's like donating her shoes and he (laughs) he's like has a bunch of her shoes and he's giving them away it's it's a whole it's a really cute yeah little situation you should definitely watch the carpool karaoke with with celine dion if you like yourself um on the topic of fashion she's also launched a gender neutral um children's clothing line with new 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 called celine new 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 (laughs) which is mostly like black and white and with like prints with stars and plus signs. Um, So there's an ad for it that I think was on her Instagram. It's, it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Livy, did you watch it? I sent it. I I know you didn't watch it. Okay. No, I'll send you the shorter version because I just don't really think that you can not see it. Unfortunately, this is an audio medium. So uh, you the listener can't see it but but again do yourself a favor okay so because this is an audio medium i have a little descriptor of this ad it's she breaks into a hospital <laughs> and there are all these babies dressed up and dressed in pink and blue separated on either side of the room um you know divided into male and female babies celine shows up in an all-black suit she's got some glitter in her palm and she blows the glitter and suddenly the babies are wearing these black and white prints, which are like plus signs and what was the other thing? Stars and music notes is like what most of the line is. And they're uh, basically, she liberates the babies in the prison that is their gender. And she gets arrested by hospital security and she's taken out and she's saying, easy, I'm Celine Dion. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know how the line is doing. Um, I really enjoy the ad and I think you will too. But I think, okay, I think it also represents that 
she she really doesn't take herself so seriously like she yeah she enjoys being Celine Dion she enjoys like her she seems to really enjoy yeah being herself and and she's not afraid to be silly like she's she's quite silly in this well and of course she's famously impersonated on Saturday Night Live and she actually brings the actor uh, on stage with her yeah uh in a concert in New York and there's Madison this, Square Garden, yeah. Yeah, and it's really a, kind of a funny video where they're both like wearing the same outfit and Celine's like laughing at Anna's impersonation of her. It's, it's cute. Very cute. Very Celine. Mm-hmm. It's been written about, certainly by Carl Wilson, who has poked a lot of fun over her over the years, about how she's gone from being somebody that kind of gets poked fun of for being you know, I don't know, cheesy um, to now kind of being recognized as iconic and awesome. Um, Carl Wilson writes, uh, at the height of Dion's pop career, cool was one thing she absolutely was not. Despite her record-breaking sales and worldwide fandom, cultural gatekeeper shut her out as at once numbingly bland and embarrassingly over the top. Rolling Stone called her voice furniture polish. Another typical critic described her style as eye bleeding. My heart will go on regularly top polls as the worst or most irritating songs ever. And I do remember, and I remember this era, you know, where people, and there are certainly people who are still kind of, you know, hostile to her like over the top cheesy style. Mm-hmm. And I think some writers I think reasonably have kind of understood this shift to appreciating her maybe maybe in part due to nostalgia but also maybe um shift in our values and I think this is Carl Wilson Mm -hmm. again who says people are less hostile sentimentality and kitschiness than they were two decades ago more able to embrace that over-the-top feeling it's a less gender normative cultural culture too and her diva persona and her status as a gay and lesbian icon help her cut across taste categories i think there's also a hatred that we have for women who are over the top and divas Mm -hmm. that especially in the early 2000s that we're now kind of starting to see as awesome like Mm-hmm. over the top divas are kind of i think for <laughs> a lot of us you know our deities and i think celine dion has kind of benefited from that shift in understanding i just think a lot of her stuff is very also on a different tangent it's just very like universal like a lot of what she sings of is like yeah the power of love the power of dreaming and i think that a lot of those like those themes tend to transcend time quite well. And it's like we were saying before too, you know, there's a place for Celine Dion songs in so many parts of that are like um, important in society. Like when you get married, you have Celine Dion songs, you know, it's like they yes, become- She hits a lot of, she's got a lot of areas, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, it, despite the fact that it may- like things only are annoying and get made fun of when they like pop up time and time and time again you know and when they're overused (laughs) and so it's like obviously people are listening to it because it resonates to them in whatever part of their life that they're using it for you know 
And it makes sense that people are kinder looking back because in mm-hmm. the moment there, we're not hearing my heart will go on in every store and elevator that we're in. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so exactly. now we're like, it's not as an, it's not like you're so sick of it that when you hear you're like, oh yeah, that song. I think I'm going to be honest. Like- I'm, I'm pretty sick of it, but <laughs> still, but like, okay, but, but you understand because it's, yeah. Yeah. because it's not all, it's not there all the time. Yeah. Like it once was like, you know, in 1998 and, and maybe into the early two thousands, like mm-hmm. there's not the same vitriol for it because no. people aren't hearing it all the time. No, hundred percent. I agree with that. Yeah. And she got made fun of a lot on like South Park and, and Saturday Night Live. And I think, yeah, I mean, well, anything like, like cause she was that famous. Like yeah, now it's like, she's, that's a, she's laughing, a, you know? Yeah. That's a sign of flattery. And to be honest, like, it's not, it's, it's never meant to be offensive really, you know, mm-hmm. she's a, an easy person to impersonate because of how distinctive she is. Right. And, and that's part of what also makes you like iconic. You have to be easily recognizable if you're just blending in, you know, it doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. I think she's, she's iconic. I think you know, people have kind of understood her as being unusual, even as a Canadian mm-hmm. superstar, because you know, the level of famous that she is like international pop star fame is very rare. And to have a Canadian rise, we don't have that many Canadians rising to that level of fame. Like, yeah, we don't like there's, there's, you know, maybe a handful and it's also not just in the English sphere. Like she's, mm-hmm. she, because she has French language music, like she's famous across the world. And it's, it's just so interesting too, that she's famous for such different things. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, as a Canadian celebrity to be as ostentatious and over the top is also kind of unusual. Um, yeah. There actually was an article about that too, about how, especially in regard to her New Day uh, Vegas residency, that's very over the top. And there's a lot of aspects to it that are uniquely Quebecois. I mean, of course, you think immediately of the fact that she's Cirque du Soleil. Um, as Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's like, it, it is interesting how like she she's not only Canadian, but she challenges, I think, our ideas of what it is to be a Canadian because she embodies so many um, like Quebecois characteristics. But, you know, investigating what that really means is, is for another time. And that makes her unique as a Canadian celebrity, too, because most Canadian celebrities are English speaking mm-hmm. or, or not Francophone like her. Or, or or we should say like international. Yeah. Um, yeah. Inter- sorry, international celebrities from Canada mm-hmm. so it's not all to I all the celebrities from uh, Quebec <laughs> yeah. be careful there yeah don't want the word like we're gonna get trolled if, if that's the case we're gonna get trolled anyway um what else to say but thank you to Celine for 40 years of music and we're excited to see what she does next thanks see you next week